Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Phil Balactus, the president and founder of the Design Futures Initiative, where he is working to educate and democratize futures thinking, which is a set of methodologies for how to think about the risk and opportunities of the future and beyond and create more responsible products and strategies today. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks for having me, Douglas. Glad to be here. Let's get started hearing a little bit about how you got your start in futures. Well, I've always sort of really been into science fiction, but mostly through uh, film, television, and books. But I didn't really start really full on getting into it until grad school. In 2009, I went to California College of the Arts here in San Francisco, California to get my, my master's. And it's a thesis program. So I knew I wanted to do something sort of future-oriented, but I didn't know what or how. I was a UI designer at the time, and I started doing a lot of research and ran into Anthony Dunn and Fiona Raby's work out of the Royal College of Art in London. And they were practicing this form of design called critical design, also called speculative and critical design. And I was just blown away by the projects that were coming out of that school and their program, Designing Interactions, because it looked nothing like the design that I had been experiencing or practicing. I was doing websites and UIs and, and stuff, and these were you know, both physical objects and digital, but really looking at the future and how design plays a role in the future. And not just like what those products look like, but incorporating things like ethics and new behaviors and new technologies and, and all sorts of things that could really shape these really interesting and compelling and weird products. It was just like design as I've never seen it before. And I felt this is an opportunity to really explore a different type of design, as well as um, incorporating both provocative approaches and thinking about other responsible practices like ethics and policies and that kind of stuff. It's really interesting to hear ethics be a part of what's referred to as kind of future initiatives or, <laughs> or, or future thinking. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because what emerges for me is like the fact that, wow, shouldn't ethics have been a part of everything from the get-go? Like, why is, why is this a futures thing? Yeah, and, and sometimes, you know, ethics are sort of, and this might be controversial, is ethics are sort of a, a social construct, right? We decide what is ethical or not and what we believe in and what we agree is ethical or not over time. As a society evolves, our morals and values change, that that can change over time. Like, you know, centuries ago, torture was ethical, right? Under the, the flag of Christianity. But yeah, the, the great thing about speculative and critical design is it proposes ideas that allow you to ask more questions. 
And you could do this through design objects, experiences, storyboards, videos, whatever it might be. But once you propose this object and ask, you know, what if this existed? Should we do it? Why or why not? Or should we not do it? Is it the future we want or don't want? And that's what's so important about actually doing these exercises because you can get, you can start to ask all those multiple types of questions and, and really bring ethics to the forefront. I mean, also feasibility and, and is this actually necessary for the world? Is it necessary for human behavior? Are we asking all the right questions around how the type of behaviors that could emerge? And are we prepared for the type of negative, you know, threatening behaviors that could emerge as well? And can and should we prepare for that today? I really love this idea of even just taking that step back and saying, you know, this is what's going to manifest if we make this thing. Is this a world that I want? Is this a you know a scenario mm-hmm. I want? It seems like a, a healthy place to be, but often teams are so busy trying to make the next thing that they don't take the time to think, is this right? Do I want this? Ah, therein lies the problem. Right. We we are constantly rushing to throw something over the fence. We we find something shiny and, and interesting, you know, emerging technologies, an idea. And we so badly want to make it work and make money off of it and provide value that we don't necessarily always go through the rigorous exercise of thinking about like what happens actually if this thing exists and exists for the next two to five years? How can, how does it evolve? How should it evolve? Uh, how, how could it evolve? And what are the implications there? And there, I mean, you know, we're not completely absent of that thinking. There's a lot of people who are thinking about implications. Product management is designers sometimes are just executing, but but we we have there are tools available through this features thinking toolkit that allow us to uh, more structurally do that work and think about it. You know, one thing that comes to mind for me is every new technology or every emerging technology has the power to shift ethics and shift what it means to be accessible. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, a great example of this, of this is like VR. What if as more and more people get headsets, we make a discovery that, oh, wow, there's 10% of people have this weird neurodiversity where they struggle with these devices. And we never knew that until Mm -hmm. we really took it to market, something we haven't even discovered yet. And now we have this ethical dilemma of of how do we handle this this accessibility as as this new norm starts to emerge. That's right. And and by using these frameworks, methodologies, and just taking the time and building that into our policy of working as designers that, hey, we've got this thing that could be potentially powerful. Let's actually assign some some real time to think about the ethical implications, the uh, the implications on the disabled, the type of, you know, behavioral patterns that could emerge. And let's just like, let's do that work. Not all of it is necessary to address right now because we don't always know, but there are some things that will emerge that will be like, okay, yeah, that's an actual real issue that could happen. And we maybe we've seen it in the field before. And what would we do? Yeah, some of it may be prescient. Like we know it's right around the corner. Right, yeah. You know, I like to compare a lot of, a lot of this work to what I did at, at General Electric. I used to work for GE Aviation, the, uh, the aviation business unit, which is responsible for building jet engines. And when we build a jet engine, it takes about 10 years to roll off the assembly line from concept to deployment. But we put those engines into such rigorous testing because they are critical for the aircraft to stay afloat, right? (laughs) Using physics, of course. But we put them through test cells and we throw every single thing we can think of at it. 
like chickens, frozen chickens, uh, rocks, ice, snow, water, everything we can to see how it could break. And if it does break, what happens to it? If we could treat everything, I mean, we don't have to spend millions of dollars on test cells for everything, but there are some technologies or platforms that are critical and could be you know, life-saving or life-harming that we should put it through this rigorous testing to make sure that, okay, this is okay to put into the world. This is okay to expose and provide access to this group of people and we're prepared for what, what's going to happen. We're prepared for these potential things, whether it's in a policy perspective or it's some sort of feature perspective, we know we've, we've done that work. It's really fascinating. It makes me think about how there are certain things that we may be creating, whether it's products or services, that are clearly going to have a high risk factor, right? Like if we're talking about oh, yeah. putting humans in a giant hunk of metal and hurling through the air at high speeds. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that no everyone can agree that there's high risk and we we should probably test that rigorously. But there's some things that the risk doesn't um, become apparent until the damage is done or that like screen time and social media and some of these things that we're even noticing some of the issues there were those easy to anticipate and how do we get around some of these issues that, you know, are hard to see into the future on? Yeah. And there will always be surprises. I mean, even if you're like, you know, a really well-seasoned practitioner of futures and doing all the work, there's always going to be some surprise. But we do know from human history and futures is based on basically the present and the past because that's all we have. We don't actually have a telephone into the future. There's lots of things that we can anticipate, right? And we learn along the way. There's lots of models we can look at to see if like, okay, this could happen. You know, there's a lot of bad acting people in the world or bad behaviors, both from users and from products that could affect us. And herein lies another problem. And who's actually driving the decision-making here? Because sometimes it's all about getting the thing out the door, making the money, and this whole idea of like, okay, let's just throw it out and test it. And if it breaks, we fix it. And okay, that's fine to get some, you know, really good immediate feedback, but don't be throwing something out into the world where you, they, there could be a real critical danger and you haven't thought about it. Because if that danger happens, you're screwed, right? Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing makes me think about this notion of just being multidisciplinary mm-hmm. and how it sounds like having anthropology background or understanding, psychology, behavioral economics. And I can imagine tons of fields that could be really valuable to be thinking through some of the history that we may want to avoid. And so I'm curious, are there mechanisms that are in place to invite that way of thinking or this multidisciplinary approach? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just like design, is, it, it's, it's nice to have someone who is an expert in, in social behavior, right? Anthropologists, historians, scientists are great UX designers, right? Or great UX researchers. It, there's no real difference in, in futures thinking. And I think one of the myths that we're, we're trying to dispel is that futures thinking is not this whole other body of, of practice. Like mm. service design isn't a whole other body of practice. It's still design. It's still systems thinking. They just have some different tools, such as a service blueprint, right? Futures thinking also has some different tools. And, but they're all, they all invite the same type of intention and requirements from who is doing it. Designers should be asking the broader questions. It, it, they should be inclusive of different expertises to try and get the right information. And sometimes as a designer, you're sort of tasked to do that all on your own. That's a great point. So what's your advice for a team that may only be a few designers or maybe the lone designer that's on a team that might want to start incorporating some of this stuff into the practice? 
I mean, it's earlier you talked about slowing down, just making space for it. But are there any other ways that they might uh, make this like maybe more approachable for the rest of the organization, or at least kind of sprinkle it in in some meaningful ways? Yeah, I mean, I, I would first start by just kind of going and looking up a few talks and stuff, and not to promote my own stuff here, <laughs> my organization's own stuff. But we have a conference called Primer. And a lot of our talks are online, but there's also a lot of other futures conferences that that post their talks. Go and see what other people are doing and kind of get inspired around the, the type of level of skill that you need and, and what you want to involve yourself. So you might be more interested in the speculative design part and not so much in the foresight part, like looking at trends and research and all that stuff. That's one place to go. There are lots of books, uh, and I can share with you a list of the ones that I've, I've been promoting. And there's training out there. There's not a lot. It, it's starting to increase now as features is getting more popular, but you can go and take a foresight class from the University of Houston, from the Institute for the Future, from Kedge, the Future School, and you can actually get certified in this stuff. I don't know if that's useful for you and your resume, but that'll teach you sort of the analytical approach. I hate to use the word analytical because I kind of box it in, but that'll teach you foresight and how to get the information and, and use it to create the world you want to design in. And then there's also speculative design courses that you can take. And these are, you don't you can take them at a university if you wanna go back to school, uh, or you can take these sort of boot camp classes that are just like a day or three days long and learn about it that way. But there are lots of different ways to start practicing it and bring it, and this is, uh, this is the, I'm working on a book right now on how to make features work. Lots of different ways you can start doing this in your organization uh, or personally. You can start to sort of evangelize it yourself bringing an external speaker in to talk about it, sharing stuff on Slack, and getting other people interested in what it is. But again, the other the other myth to dispel is that futures only works in the far future. And that's why sometimes people don't really invest in it. And that's the, the, the uphill battle we're fighting. You can take these tools, once you figure out what the methodologies are, you can take them and put them into your practice, such as like the futures wheel, which is an, an implication mapping diagram. You can take that into any project today. You can actually use it to map out your, your trip to the grocery store if you want to. And it doesn't have to be this other futures practice. It's just a tool. And you can use it right away. And if people are interested, you can be like, look, this is part of a much greater tool set for thinking about the future. And uh, we can help you with this stuff. And it's a strategic, you know, a strategic approach. That's really cool. Yeah, it's just taking a simple tool Maybe not even making a big to-do about what it's called or what it is or what framework it's in and just bringing it in when it's needed. And if people start asking questions, then you know that opens the door for a bigger conversation. Yeah, and typically you, know, you have to be cautious and know your culture and know your culture's vocabulary. When I first started to integrate this stuff at GE, I never called it speculative design or, or futuring. We just called it strategy and vision. We're just going to do a design thinking workshop and we're going to do the strategy and vision for the next two years of your software platform and slowly would smuggle in these exercises and be like, okay, what about this? What about this? What if this happened? What if this was in the world? Do you want this? And it's what people don't really realize. It's a very practical approach. You know, we go and develop software for that and plan out for the next year or two, and you can use the same tools to do the same thing, except for you much have, you have much richer data sets. You have richer visualizations and narratives, and it's, it's a lot, I don't know, more fun (laughs) and immersive to to, to do it this way. Yeah, that's cool. I think that comes up often for quite a few of the listeners, this idea of having to run a strategic workshop or strategic planning of some sort. And 
it definitely strikes me as perfect time to insert these things or smuggle them into, as you were saying. Yeah. And, and you know, sometimes we even call the workshop the future of X company or the future of work for X company. That also gives it this like really imaginative, creative, playful space, gets people excited about, oh, it's the future of our organization. We've been invited to create the future. And setting up that space early, you don't have to tell them about the tools, design fiction, all that stuff. You're just saying like, this is a visionary workshop. And we are here to think about the future of our industry, our business, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it should start, you know, uh, igniting that excitement, hopefully. Absolutely. So I was really curious, you mentioned speculative design versus foresight. And I think you were maybe saying that foresight was kind of the analytical stuff, uh, even though you're a little bit worried about pigeonholing it with, with that name. But how would you delineate speculative design versus kind of foresight? Well, when I explain it, I, I try to think of it in three different phases of, of futuring work. Strategic foresight, which is uh, a pretty mature field, you, you can go and take classes on this stuff in business school, has a set of methodologies for taking intelligence from trends, different types of trends we're seeing in the world, all the drivers that create those trends, talking to people and experts, getting all that information and using prioritization tools to, to prioritize them, and then doing scenarios, building scenarios of what the future could be. I like to pair up scenario design or scenario building with world building. And we're using that those terms interchangeably these days. World building is it comes from science fiction authoring. When you're reading a, a fictional book, they build the world around you, right? You start off and they tell you the characters are, the laws, the rules, the history, all that stuff. And that's what you can do with this stuff. You can use this intelligence to create different scenarios, different worlds that could happen. There's a pandemic world. There's a non-pandemic world. There's something in the middle. There's a transformational world where everything's great, utopic, and there's a collapse world where everything starts to fall apart. Systems fall apart. Everything fails. And once you have those worlds and you know the conditions within those worlds, looking at both social, technological, economical, environmental, political, policy, all that stuff, you can use the design aspect, this is phase two, the speculative design aspect to start to design products and services and understand users and markets in those worlds based on what you know already. You're never going to have all the information, but working with your client or whatever the project is, you, you prioritize what information you want to use to, to craft that environment. And then that's where we create all these future products and services or platforms, whatever it might be. The third phase, which is the most important, is strategy. You do all this work by painting out the vision of what this new world is going to be, you collaborate on what the vision is that you want. Hopefully it's like the place you want to go and you use strategy, which is business as usual on how you're going to get there. You plot out the next, you know, two, five years, however it might be. And you can use something called backcasting where you basically put that goal in the future and you backcast into the present and say, what's necessary for this thing to happen, for this thing to come to life. We need people, we need infrastructure, we need, uh, I mean, to learn more about this emerging technology, all that stuff, you plan that roadmap there. And that's basically it. We've been doing this for a long time, except for, you know, we've only been doing it in the short term. We can start planning much, much further. Wow. You know, the backcasting stuff sounds super familiar. I think I've run into it a few times and it's, it's also similar in the, for all the learning and development folks, it's similar to backwards design, right? Where we want to look at our outcome and think about how we get our student to the outcome. So if we're looking at that future, then how do we think about kind of moving from that? What is that 
next near future, the next near future, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. So another thing that I've seen from your work, I think you, you're the first that turned me on to this, this word. And then, of course, it brought back lots of memories of examples of, of this. I just never knew what it was called. And it was design fiction. You know, the, the, the videos or movies of this is where 3M is going to be in like 20 years or whatever. The specific memory I have was you playing a video, I think it was Apple. Mm-hmm. It was right when the Newton came out or right before it came out. And it was, they, were, they were basically showing what, is, what you could actually draw a line to is now a Siri. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really fascinating looking at it in the old ones because you can look and go, how much of that did they get right versus how much it was just like totally off the mark? Yeah. And they're almost there, right? If you, the, the Apple Knowledge Navigator video, which you're, which you're referring to, was created by um, Hugh Doverly, who was a designer at Apple in 87, I think. And John Scully was the CEO. And what they wanted to do was basically create a video for a marketing conference that was showcasing emerging technology. And so they crafted this story, built this prototype, and had this like seven-minute video of a professor collaborating with someone across the world on, on stuff. And you know, the only thing that hasn't come true out of that video is the, f- well, not for Apple at least, is the folding touchscreen tablet. Samsung kind of beat them to that. Not, 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 I mean, we don't know if like the folding part is so necessary, but they did make all that happen. I don't think that the designers of the last, you know, 40 years or so have been looking at the navigator and saying, this is the thing we want to build. But we do know that it sparked a lot of interest and it, it channeled a lot of intelligence into the organization and it became sort of a, a goal of some sort, maybe not a, a constant one, but inspiration for, for future designers there. And the fiction part, so I'm not going to get into the nuances about the difference between the terminology, but a design fiction is any sort of fictional thing that you create. And most design fiction projects usually are prototypes, functional prototypes. You put it in someone's hands and make them believe it's real and, this thing ex- and they're in the future and this thing exists and they use it as a, a prototyping research tool. And if you released the Apple video into the world and said, this is real when it wasn't and got feedback from it, that also would have been operating as a design fiction vehicle as well. Mm, I see. So the fact that it's um, the sleight of hand of like, hey, this thing, this is a real new thing that we've created is what makes it design fiction. Yeah. So it's in a, in a lot of ways, it's uh, what we used to call vaporware. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And a very powerful tool. Yeah. If you don't know if it's real or not, you can really get some good feedback around, is this the thing we want or don't want? What's wrong with it? You know, what's good about it? And give you some intelligence on like, okay, this is the thing we want to build or not build. Exactly. Wow. Really cool. So I want to come back. You mentioned your conference in passing, Primer. Yeah. When is that coming up again? Well, since pandemic, we've gone fully online. I'm, I'm, I'm praying for the day that we can go back to in person. This year, it's going to be we usually do it around the summertime, around June, July, but this year we're going to push it out to August because I think a lot of people are burnout on <laughs> Zoom conferences. We saw our numbers drop quite drastically last year, and a lot of the team has been kind of stifled by the pandemic. So we're, we're pushing it out. We're going to have a lot more time to plan it. Excellent. Well, hopefully August gives you enough time to reboot and people are excited and come and renewed and have lots of cool things to say. Is there, are there any developments since you've had the last one that you're you're kind of excited to highlight and thematically push on the next conference? Well, we've always really tried to curate the arc of the conference by inviting everyone from the futures fields. So because Strategic Foresight had its own community, 
spec of design, design fiction, academia, have their own community of people. We've invited everyone there. So you're going to be able to see everything from very conceptual, artistic, critical design, very just provoking projects, people, artists who are doing this work, to people who are sort of doing it in the middle and uh, practically practicing it in corporate environments, such as GE and Lufthansa. So you get a full range of the the wideness of futuring and how different it can be in different settings. But the great great thing is is now we have more people, you know, working in corporate environments who are showing what they're doing and making it work. Last year we did something new. Typically we have the primer team, internal team who's selecting, we we do a call for speakers and then we select those talks and then we create the arc ourselves. Last year, because we have this global community, we have over 80 chapters around the world right now and still growing, we asked each region to curate the program. And so all the submissions came in and then those were distributed amongst the regions and they were able to pick. So we had better representation and plus involvement from community leaders to feel like they're invested in the program. And that felt like more of a family, like global family curated event. Than before, so I think I love that idea, and you know, again, plus being online, it's it's our access was just just increased. I think the first year during the pandemic when we went online, we had like I don't know nine hundred people who had signed up. Not all those people came and were engaged, but we had the most amount of people who were interested in, uh, than ever before. So I think staying online is going to be great. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely that's one thing we notice with our communities is that it just exposed a global audience, you know, just open things up in a big way. Of course, time zones were still a challenge, but accessibility just went through the roof because, you know, people didn't have to, you know, take off time from work and fly and all these things. Yeah. And you can't, you can't really argue that point. Like I know everyone wants to go back to in person, but Jesus, like the accessibility is just great. We have to continue to do this, whether pandemic is here or not. I, I see that, you know, hybrid's going to be the next step. We're doing both. I went to, oh yeah, you guys did that hybrid meeting the other day, which I thought was was amazing. And we're still learning more about how to make that work effectively and, and inspiring. And so I'm 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 excited about that opportunity as well to shape that new model. Yeah, that brings me back to another point that I was thinking about earlier. Nice segue into VR. When you were talking about world building. I couldn't help but my, my brain went to VR because we were just the other week in there doing world building around what is the future of facilitation. And we were quite yeah. literally like building worlds to simulate the yeah. environment. I mean, that's like kind of what VR is about. And then um, then I had a moment where a little meta moment where I was thinking about, oh, wow, the futures is about creating a world or a little container to do an experiment, engaging in some thoughts around what if. What if creating a container in VR that allowed us to to frame our thinking so that when we went in there, we were kind of surrounded by this potential world that we were considering. Mm-hmm. And so our conversations would kind of be imbued with that. Curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the beauty about VR being a completely different world is we can create it. And so I think it, it's really interesting because, it, I mean, it's it's – it's expected that we would try to create our world in VR, but the rules are different. And I'm looking forward to when new worlds are created that don't mimic the real world. How do we have a workshop that doesn't, that doesn't look like a workshop in virtual space where we use this virtual space and take advantage of all of the features and capabilities of being there and 
you know, breaking the rules of physics and, 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 and how we actually engage and document things and the type of exercise we do. I'm looking forward to how that expands itself. But with the metaverse coming, I still believe, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm not sure if people agree and disagree, that, that metaverse still has about a decade to, to really be matured. Augmented reality might come first. And so that's another sort of in-between world where we can start to create new interim worlds. I think that's going to be a fun, a fun thing to start playing with as well. But, you know, I think like you said, building new worlds means building a lot of different rules and laws and policies. And those are the things we have to kind of watch out for as we do that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I think mainstream adoption of this stuff and, you know, designing for customers and big use cases probably weighs off. The epiphany I was just having was using it as an internal design tool. So we almost create a, a room for ourselves to go into that's kind of decorated with this like landscape that we want to consider. And so when we go in there, we're inundated or surrounded by these considerations. And so it yeah. helps like prime our thinking maybe. Yeah. Back at GE, we had a, um, a holodeck where we basically had a room that was built that was circular and we were doing VR, but that was in a different space. And we would take this like customized GoPro, 360 GoPro, and plant it out in the middle of a train yard or an aviation facility or whatever, and then project that around it so that our designers could see what it's actually like to be in that world so that we can design better for those users in that context. I see that kind of thing also happening with VR too, where we don't have to imagine what it's like to be a user or a community working in this environment, we can put that environment in and we can walk around in it and actually prototype live in it. We don't have to do it in a separate workspace. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, for sure. It's gotten me thinking big time to your point a moment ago around, you know, defining not just creating a facilitation room that we go into. What they created for the conference was two different worlds. But uh, I think the thing that excited me the most was a lazy river of reflection. Mm. And it was modeled after Rose Thorn Bud. Oh. And so the river was in three different sections. Right. And so instead of having a timer that's going off, this mechanical thing that's just glaring at you like, oh, you're running out of time, it's more around how the environment's unfolding, like how far along the river are we? Right, yeah. Which like blew my mind open around, wow, when you go into these kind of other spaces, you can think about other mechanics that allow us to know how much, um, how far we've gone and how, how much time we have left. It's a really interesting thing to ponder. Yeah, I love that. I love that feature that you guys had. I loved your your mural board, by the way, too. Yeah, and how we've transformed along the way. It's an actual journey, and I love that you guys are thinking about that. Like that's what I mean by designing the arc of the conference. These conferences have a lot of opportunity to be more experiential and immersive. And you know, there's a lot of challenges with being on, online. I, I'm always looking for like, what are people doing to take advantage of this? thing that we're in, the situation. Who's really being creative and innovative in this space and really trying to like, you know, just like go all in and push the envelope and all that stuff. And you guys did an amazing job. Well, you know, I just heard a story the other day. Tony Robbins, for better or worse, Tony Robbins had a conference and he had 800,000 people in this thing. And he had his team custom build a tool so that they could have 800,000 people live cameras on at the same time. No way. Because, you know, you can't do that in Zoom or, or like hop in and, you know, all the platforms have yeah. limitations. And, and right. he was like, well, I'm not going to settle because I want this thing. And so he 
they they built it and i was like wow you know that's fascinating that's awesome wow i didn't know about that yeah i don't know a ton about the inner workings of it but just the notion of eight hundred thousand people in at the same time it's like with cameras on that's something else (laughs) yeah he's he's really popular so I want to hear a little bit more about the future toolkits or the futures toolkit, I think you called it. Where can folks find this and what are just some of the maybe bang for the buck kind of exercises that are maybe easiest to understand if you want to dip their toe in? I mean, you, men- you mentioned the futures wheel, which I've used before and I'm familiar with, but uh, what are some others that people might try out if they're just kind of getting their feet wet? Yeah, there's lots of talks out there. I do a pretty decent one-on-one talk where I talk about some of the methodologies. If you just look at some of the older talks, I, I mentioned a couple of them of them in there. But you know, the first phase of it is really something we all know mostly about, like just talking to people, talking to people about what they think the future is going to be, uh, asking them what trends to look out for. The trend research. So there's no. This is not necessarily a, a framework or methodology, but being able to identify trends in the world, know how to look for them, know where to look for them, and how to categorize them. Is it a mega trend? Is it a micro trend? Is it a fad? You know, how is this trend actually evolving right now, and where do we see it going? And then using there's sort of a, a two by two matrix called the probability impact matrix. You put probability on one side, and you put impact on the other. Probability can be like the probability that this will be popular today, or you can you can split probability up into like five, 10, 20 years. And you can just plot a trend on this on this map and say, how impactful will it be and when will it actually hit? So autonomous cars is is gonna be a mega trend over the next 10 years. So we'll see it like, you know, you know, persisting over the next 10 years. Once you have this information, you take out your slice of time of like the horizon, we call it the time horizon. So let's say we're looking at 2030. Once we have that slice time, we'll know what trends are gonna be the most prevalent in that in that area, if we've done good enough research. I would get very specific though, like just thinking like the future of cars is too big, but the future of like radios in cars or <laughs> the future of like, I don't know, a specific thing is is usually helpful to help you prioritize it. And then there's lots of different scenarios you can build. If you just Google scenario archetypes, that's one. There's a lot of good articles and videos out there that'll teach you what kind of scenarios you can build. And honestly, you can you can make them up. There's like the utopic scenario, the dystopic scenario. Then there's the one in between. And there's the business as usual where nothing changes. We know that that doesn't always happen because things change. But you can start to map out the different worlds based on these conditions. And yeah, the futures wheel is very powerful. And that's the number one tool that I would recommend out of this entire toolkit because you can use it anywhere at any time. Aspective design doesn't necessarily have like a double diamond, really. You just have to sort of understand the conditions you're working with. The futures wheel can give you areas that you might want to design a response for. So let's say you use the futures wheel and you find out there's this like third impact third order consequence due to the advent of autonomous cars or the advent of flying cars, that might be the one that you want to pioneer through a spec of design project or to it's, it's a threat to the industry. You might want to create a contingency plan towards that. And yeah, there's different types of design prototyping, design fiction that you can use to create that. Some of it, you know, I can't teach you. It's just being creative and looking for the trends in the world that you want to respond to. And then, the, yeah, the backcasting is a pretty strong one for stra- for a strategy, but it, that's not really hard to teach. You just, whatever your object or goal, North Star that you created, just put it in the future in that time horizon, 2030, and just map it back to the present. It's it's pretty simple. 
But um, yeah, I mean, th- there's a ton of different tools. There's causal layered analysis, which is another one. There's all types of different ways you can prioritize trends in intelligence. But yeah, just Google strategic foresight. And, and there's lots of articles out there that'll teach you some of the different tools you can use. Again, you don't have to use all these tools. You could literally just look at trends or, you know, just <laughs> figure out where you want to get your data from and build your world or go just directly into your respective design thing. I think that's a good point. I think not enough organizations do the research or pay close enough attention to some of the emerging trends and sit with them mm-hmm. to think about, like, what does that really mean as far as, like, where this could go? Yeah, and, and one thing I discovered, which is powerful at a business strategy consultancy that I worked at in the past, was having data. So if you're talking about the future, even with just regular business analysts, they have a lot of data. When they're creating their PowerPoints with hockey sticks on them, they have a lot of data. So knowing where to look at the trends, but also how to support those trends with data. So uh, go and look at market investment. Go see who's talking about it on TikTok. Go see what startups exist or are forming around this technology. Go see who's talking about it. Is it on the verge? Is it on wired? And all that data can can support the strength of that trend so that people believe it. Basically, building the world is you're building a belief system. If you have supporting, um, supporting information to make your client believe that, okay, this is the world that's probably going to happen because all these people are investing in it and it looks like it's going to be a reality. Now you're one step in. Now let's think about what do we want to do in this world? You know, how do we want to disrupt or create or or whatever it might be? You mentioned third order effects a moment ago, and I just want to make sure for the listeners that maybe weren't clear on what that is, uh, could you maybe give a little bit of detail on what you mean by third order effects? Sure. The um, the futures wheel is basically a circular map. In the center, you put a trend, event, a signal, the uh, existence of something. So let's just say autonomous cars. The existence of autonomous cars. The first circle that you draw out from it, or the first piece of information is the first order consequence. What's the direct implication of autonomous cars? And it could be at any degree. It can be a social implication, a cultural implication, technological implication, economic, whatever it might be. So let's just say from behavioral user user uh, implication, the first direct implication is we don't have to drive. My hands don't have to be on a wheel. The car's going to take me to where it goes. Great. Okay, that's first order. The second order or indirect implication is the thing that happens because of that. So because I don't have to learn how to drive anymore and the car takes me, if I had learned how to drive before, I could forget how to drive in case there's an emergency. If the car malfunctions, I won't know how to properly steer the thing because I've forgotten it. I've de-evolved that part of my training. And you can go on so far and so forth. And so people forget how to drive, there are more accidents, the body count rises. You know, all these things that can happen down the road. And it's up to you to decide how far out you go. And those orders of consequences can also go in periods of years. So the first direct consequence that happens in the next two years, then the next five years, then the next 10 years, it depends on how you want to use your map. And then, so you might want to say like, okay, well, this is actually pretty serious. People are going to forget how to drive and they're going to give you accidents. How do we solve that now? Can we create a speculative project idea of how we might want to solve that now? Or do we just want to say, hey, we've thought about it, and here's the plan. We either actually invest in that plan, or we just say, let's wait for it to happen. And if it does, we at least have done some of the work to actually you know, execute on that. My other question was something that I was thinking about a couple times as we were talking, and that's 
How beneficial, or I would imagine it would be beneficial to have different categories or lenses by which you look or prompt, especially in the case of the futures wheel. And I, I think when I first encountered it, we were using pestle as like a mechanism to like mm -hmm. think about what are the categories or lenses we'll look at these first, second, and third order, et cetera, effects. Do you have any favorite different lenses or perspectives you might look into pure into the future through to help kind of with your thinking and expose different opportunities or risks? Yeah, pestle is just a different version of steep. Steep is a pretty standard one. Social, technological, environmental, economic, and politics is is what they use. I try to use, instead of politics, because sometimes politics can be so volatile and it's a little bit too big to handle, I use policy. What's the policy environment we're operating in? Do we need new policies for certain implications or uh, do we need to modify things? And then environment doesn't necessarily have to be the natural environment like sustainability and nature. Environment can literally be the context. So if you, we, I worked with a cleaning solution company once and the E in environment was, yes, we're talking about environmentally safe chemicals, but also the kitchen. Because a lot of the users of this cleaning agent were in the kitchen. Lots of conversations happened there. The use is the primary use there. And so that's, that's the environment part. You can also add V to the end, which is values, values and morals. So even though social and cultural are also a category, values uh, within a particular time are also important. They can change over time. So yeah, steep, steep or steep V are the ones I typically use. And when we spoke earlier in the pre-show chat, you mentioned that policy is an area that you are really interested in right now and you're kind of looking into the design of policy. And I found that pretty fascinating. So I would love to hear a little more about how design futures, these tools, your work can be applied to policy, how you're going about that. Yes, yeah, so I have a talk that I did for IXDA's interaction last year, which is just a short 15-minute talk, uh, just breaching the subject. But I've got a longer one that I've been doing, and I'm going to do it again at UX New Zealand here in, in February. So when we constantly think about the future, we think about future products and services, we're just thinking about the thing, right? And maybe we're thinking about the people and the interactions, behavior, and is this the thing we want? But rarely are we thinking about the policy environment, because every single thing that's in the world, every product, even just to exist in a particular society, in a nation, you are surrounded and governed by policy. And most of those policies are created by people who are not designers. They're government officials, they're product managers and leadership, they're strategists. And the design of those things aren't necessarily always thought about, nor is the idea of actually including all the voices and thinking about the implications of that policy on, the, on society, on users, customers, the public, whatever it might be. And by doing some of that work, and I'm not, I'm not saying that that work is not being done. Some of it is is being done. But our hypothesis is that designers can be part of this process. We can think about who are the necessary people that need to be at the table? What are the implications on these people? Policy, and is the policy being designed to recognize those implications? Because sometimes policies get through, it's basically decided on by a small body. If you're lucky, it's exposed to the public. And if the public actually understands what the policy is, do the language that's used. And sometimes the language is very, very difficult and not really designed for general public. If they actually understand it and you actually can create, provide input to shape the policy, then you're lucky. But most of the time it's not. Lots of legalese, lots of fine print. You get confused on what it is. I and mean, we see this when we're voting for, for certain legislations. We don't get it, you know? But if we can design that content so people do get it and, and want to engage with it, 
that's one step that we can that we can improve. And also just the the principles that we use of, with design of like, let's prototype this thing in the world. Let's make sure it's malleable and can change if necessary. Let's think about the long-term effects of it. What does it mean for the future, our future generations? And how do people interact with it? And constantly changing things, not making it set in stone, make sure that's malleable and, and can evolve, but also those layers of interaction. We don't think about design as like designing language, but the language of policy is so important. That interaction layer, whether it be the terms and conditions that you agree on, the sign that you read on the restaurant that says you can't enter here without a mask or vaccination, the product that goes out the door that doesn't recognize people of color, the laws that are hindering uh, real action on climate change, on diversity and inclusion, all of these things have a moment where people interact with it and they have to understand it and they have to either agree or disagree or, or, or comprehend it. If we can design those interaction layers from the content up so we understand it and how we engage with it, and we can understand and actually have a real opinion that matters, not just like I'm going to skip through all this stuff and just so I can get in and now I'm stuck within this policy environment that I can't do something or it could be possibly harmful to me or my brothers and sisters, you know, maybe we'll have stronger, more useful, effective policies that govern our products in society today that we can all depend on, you know, that we actually trust. We're not so, you know, stupid <laughs> and like completely... Uh, you know, oblivious to what it is that is weaving the the future of our of our world, and so that that's that's what we're looking at. We're we're talking to lots of different people from public policy, government to product managers, and trying to figure out is there a framework and an initiative where we can start to to apply our design principles and our sensibilities so that we can design policies better. Wow, so cool! Something that came up for me as I was listening was the book Flash Boys by Michael Lewis, where he was talking about high-speed trading. Mm. And one of the points he made in the book was that every SEC regulation, for the most part, was created to shut down an exploit. But each, in turn, created an opportunity for the next exploit. <laughs> right. So that, to me, seems like a huge opportunity when making those policies to look at those third and fourth order effects, right? What are the right. what are the exploits that might be created by this new policy? Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm right? Just like products. Mhm. Mm That's all thing is a policy can be a product that we design. And we just need to have that, you know, sort of neutral opinion so that they're not designed to create harm or to leverage one person's interests more than the other and um, just be fair, inclusive and, you know, incorporate all the things that we really care about. So amazing. Well, we're about to wrap up here. I just got a couple things I want to hit before we end. And the first is, what do you think the future of futures is? Like, where are things headed? Like, what do you think like, will emerge in the discipline of futures, you know, in the next five, 10 years? Yeah, I mean, that's a, uh, well, I'm going to be biased here, but <laughs> I really hope that people are going to be practicing futures more, more often. But I think, you know, what we're seeing happening in the field is that the problem with futures being adopted so widely is because it's always, like I said earlier, considered as this different thing and it's too far in the future. We can't measure return on investment and it's, you know, it's just not worth our time. And you've got to go through all this training and, and it's academic and all that stuff. 
I believe that design in general will start to incorporate more futures thinking as a strategic tool and it'll become part of our toolkit. There might become futures designers as a specific role or you know, strategic design futurists, whatever it might be. But I think that the way we're gonna make it work and make it useful is if it just becomes part of our, our toolkit. And design will evolve and maybe splinter out just like it has over the last 20 years. You know, you'll have some specialty, people who are specialized and groups are specialized. But I think that it's gonna just become more normalized, I think. And why it hasn't happened yet? Well, I don't, <laughs> you know, people are still using it, but again, it's siloed into this very specific, customized, special thing. And that's what we're trying to break apart. It doesn't have to be only for these experts. Everyone can use it. Everyone should be using it. And all of the good natured things like ethics and responsibility, environment, all that stuff should be things we should all be thinking about all the time. And, and as these social issues are rising to the surface uh, globally, here's an opportunity for us to think about all those things we really care about, like climate change and use these tools. So I think like, as those social issues rise, so shall our, our method of approaching it. And, and, and hopefully that'll be the case. Awesome. So let's wrap here with a final thought from you to the audience. Yeah, so if you're interested in this work, go out and, and, and do the research and, and try to practice it and apply it. Don't be afraid of, of futures thinking or, or be intimidated by the work or the methods or anything. It's very easy and very practical. Again, you know, just like any methodology, anything you bring into your, your practice or your organization, you, you should just be careful of the vocabulary and all that stuff. It's like introducing, again, like service design or even still today, like, you know, I, I worked with a lot of companies who had never heard of agile or design thinking. Mm -hmm. You use the same approach to for how you might want to sell it or incorporate it into your practice and um, contribute to the community. Do some, do, do some projects, work on it, share your work with other people so that we learn from you on how to make it work or how it doesn't work. Be positive of it and, and embrace the future. Awesome. And how can folks find you in, in the talks that you mentioned today? You can connect with me on LinkedIn if you want to have a discussion, teach me something, or just talk about stuff. I have a couple of websites. Easiest one is my name, if you can spell my name. It's philbalactus.com. I also have a new uh, independent advisory and consultancy called Habitat, Designing Future Habitats, Future Worlds. Uh, and that website, which is coming, is uh, onehabitat.design. We also have our uh, the Design Futures Initiative website, which is www.futures.design. We have our conference, Primer Conference, which is primerconference.com. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. Awesome. If you go to my one of those websites, you'll find other other links to other places. Excellent. Well, we'll make sure to get those links in the show notes, and I'll follow up with those book recommendations too. Maybe we'll get those in the show notes so folks can learn more about futures, maybe check out the conference, get engaged, and um, start uh, start incorporating this in their work. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for being on the show, Phil. Thank you, Douglas. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com. <laughs>